Two things are infinite. The universe and human stupidity. I'm not sure about the universe. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. <laughs> oh, yeah, baby, Albert Einstein. Oh, young Albert. You know, I've got a feeling that I read that quote many podcasts ago. Yeah. But hey, who's, who's paying attention anyway? We're on podcast 185 now. There's only so many things that people Jesus have said. Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, Jamie, yeah. I, I tell you what, May the 15th is a bit of a kind of... Space Day. So many good May things. May the 15th be with you. Do you want to know sort of things that have happened on May the 15th? Can I get a Sputnik? You can get a Sputnik. 1958, Sputnik 3. Here we go. The one that looked like a Dalek. Oh. It really does look like a Dalek with silly arms. I mean, why they didn't strap a massive PA to the side of it to scream exterminate, I'll never know. How do you know they didn't? Mm, true. That was the one they launched in the International Geophysical Year, 1958. Glory. Glory. 1960, same day, Sputnik 4. Although it wasn't called Sputnik 4 to the Russians, they called it Karabi Sputnik 1. Karabi, I like that. Yeah, so, which was the first of the Vostok spacecraft. So the Vostok that later would carry Gagarin up into orbit. But this one, get this, and I didn't know anything about this. It malfunctioned a little bit when they were trying to bring it back down. And it ended up landing in Wisconsin. Oh. And we'll talk about something very similar happened this week. But yeah, this landed in Wisconsin in the middle of North 8th Street. So if you live in the small town of Manitowoc in Wisconsin, on North 8th Street, there's a little patch where this Sputnik 4 hit. And each September... They uh, celebrate Sputnik Fest. I would love to go to Sputnik Fest. We have to go for my birthday. Let's go to Sputnik Fest. It's got to be done. We'll wear face masks. Big time. And then 1963, the Americans had their turn by sending Gordon Cooper on the last of the Mercury missions, Mercury Atlas 9. And he became the first American to spend more than a day in space and the last American to ever go into space on his own. Oof. That would be scary, wouldn't it, Matt? Going in on your own. Going in on your own? Well, no one does it anymore. No one no. does it anymore. So, Jamie. Yeah? How about this for a space name? Maximilian Hell. You just made that up. No, Maximilian Hell. Oh, that's the born dream, Born on is. this day, yeah, born on this day, 1720. He was one of 22 children or something ridiculous. Um, he, oh, he became a, a pretty bang-out astronomer, Hungarian. He called himself Hungarian, a bit of German descent. Uh, a massively ace astronomer, observed the transit of Venus at the time, and he was very good at cataloguing stars. Hmm. And there's a little bit of hell on the moon, because there's a crater called Hell on the moon. I love that. And it's, named, what, and it's named after Maximilian. If I ever bear a child, I'm going to call it Maximi Maximilian Hell Franklin. Mm, MHF. Yes. Oh, MHF. That is, that's pretty cool, it's isn't good it? Name. Max strong, Hell isn't it? Franklin. It's yeah. very strong. Very strong. But I wanted to have Space Legend of the Week, also born on this day. Born with the name Wilhelmina Patton Stevens in the beautiful Scottish town of I Dundee. Oh, I love Dundee. Dundee. So, yes, you were born on this day, 1857. 1857. Wow. And 20 years later, she married James Fleming. So she became Wilhelmina Patton Fleming. Wilhelmina okay. Fleming. And that will be a name that will be familiar to some of our listeners out there. And she moved to Boston. So she went from Scotland to Boston. And then James, being a bit of a cad, the dirty Scot, uh -oh. abandoned her, abandoned oh. her, and she became a maid for a chap called Edward Pickering. Okay. 
if you're a regular listener to the show, you'll remember Pickering because we mentioned him quite a few times because he had he was basically the boss of the Harvard computers. That's or right. Less less politically correct, Pickering's harem. <laughs> yeah. God. Which is made up of a, a, a bunch of women that uh, Pickering and his wife basically encouraged to work for Pickering, like doing all the computing. Yeah. So Pickering's way of venting steam with his male colleagues was to say, my Scottish maid could do better, like that, mm. and, and chastise them. And it turned out she could. Yeah. It turned out that after she was kind of like involved, they said, you know, come and learn how to do all this stuff. She went on, Wilhelmina Fleming went on to discover Perhaps my very favouritest thing in the night sky, the Horsehead Nebula. Oh, you love that. Well, we all love it. It's, it it's, does It's the best. It's the most picturesque things in the hydrogen alpha you can see. 59 gaseous nebulas, 310 Oof. variable stars, 10 novae, and she is credited with discovering the first ever white dwarf. So, yes, she openly advocated for women in the sciences uh, at a talk she gave at the Chicago World Fair in 1893 oh, called yeah. A Field for Woman's Work in Astronomy. So, yeah, the, they went on to become absolute. They were really famous in their day, the Harvard computers. Mm. But over the course of, you know, the next few decades, they were kind of slowly forgotten about. But uh, I've noticed that their kind of reputation is being restored recently. There was a, The BBC ran a few stories, particularly one about a project called Phaedra. Phaedra, which is okay. named Phaedra. P-H-A-E-D-R-A, -P which is, uh, I think, a Greek goddess. Um, but Project Phaedra, preserving Harvard's early data and research in astronomy. And that is a project where they found all these logbooks by these Harvard computers, all these amazing women, and uh, are, are slowly digitizing them so that you can look through. They all start to get the credit that they deserve for all these discoveries that they've made. And I believe Chris Lintot's Zooniverse, there's a link to the Phaedra notebooks there, so you can go through. And so listeners, can, while you're bored at home, you can actually take part in two of these things and start going through the astronomical plates and and naming them, and you can go through the notebooks and, and start help putting them together so that this bunch of amazing astronomers get the uh, get the recognition that they deserve incredible rightly so 100 wow. years later amazing happy birthday Wilhelmina Fleming and to all the people that you've encouraged to get into astronomy here here happy birthday Wilhelmina what an amazing space legend shall we there's a little bit of space news before we go on to our guest and our guest it does actually tie in very nicely with uh, uh, Wilhelmina Fleming, so that will be pretty cool. Defo. But in space news the, this week, relating to the uh, Wisconsin Sputnik 4 incident, oh, yeah. what was really cool was following jo our mate Jonathan McDowell. Ah, uh, yes, big John. Yes, fellow British Interplanetary Society member. Of course. Absolute legend to follow on Twitter. He, he he really is the expert when it comes to stuff flying around the Earth. So we made a bit of a fuss when uh, Tiangong-1, the heavenly palace, hmm. Chinese space station, made its uncontrollable fall to Earth back in um, 2018. Remember that? That's right, yeah. Eight tons, and everyone's going, is it going to fall on people? Well, what if I was to say to you, this week, there was a 21-ton object what? that was coming down. Yeah. Now, what was incredible about this is I'd never really thought about it, but, yeah, Long March, this Long March 5B that we were sort of very excited about last week, that's 21 tons of object that went into orbit that then has to decay. Now, normally, obviously when people launch these mega rockets they kind of sort that out but the chinese don't seem to have done that at all it's just no. like oh we're just well it just will come down where it comes down yeah it'll be fine so it was actually quite tense following uh old jonathan mcdowell's twitter so it was going over and uh and at some point it's it, it was out of control and its orbital track 
went over the top of places like Los Angeles and New York Bloody and hell. places like that. <laughs> and uh, eventually, after you know a pretty close call, if it had come in like a few minutes earlier, it actually may have hit New York. But imagine? instead, I know <laughs> it's just ridiculous. But instead, uh, it looked like it had hit the Atlantic Ocean, uh, just splashed down. Phew. You know, statistically, that's probably the, the you know the most likely place for it to hit one of the big oceans. So in it pops, smashes into the ocean. But a few hours later, lots of photos started appearing on Twitter from the Ivory Coast village of Mahunu. Mahunu. And Mahunu, of a large metal pipe that had crashed out of the sky. And it's exactly on this... Mahunu is exactly on this track. So this is what Jonathan McDowell said. He says, When you have a big chunk of metal screaming through the upper atmosphere in a particular direction at a particular time, and you get reports of things falling out of the sky at that location at that time, it's not a big leap to connect them. So almost certainly this massive great big metal pipe that's landed in the back of this this Ivory Coast village, is is part of the Long March 5B. That, that is crazy. Oh, my God. No, and the crazy thing is, obviously, most people have signed up to one of these space treaties that says, basically, if you launch something into orbit, then mm. you're responsible for the damage that it causes. And China actually have signed up to that, so they would have been in trouble. However, Ivory Coast haven't signed up to that um, agreement. Mm. <laughs> so Chinese might not have to pay any reparations there. Bloody hell. So what I don't know, and it seems that the Chinese aren't being very forthcoming on that, is whether the Chinese genuinely lost control and it was an accident, or they just simply don't give a monkey's. Not that bothered. Yeah, mm. it's like, oh, it just doesn't matter. It's just negligence rather than I don't than an think they would have been saying that had that, uh, you know, fallen on New York. But the Chinese government can go do one at the moment, for goodness sake. Yes. Uh, anyway, although I'm not going to go as far as, oh. like, all the accusations that they did it deliberately and all that kind of nonsense. No. Uh, uh, Jamie, there is uh, – you yeah. have to go check this out. I played it yesterday and and – after I, I was I was really convinced I was doing really really well and then I crashed into the space station and uh, failed. Um, right, so you must be talking about the SpaceX uh, online simulator. I am talking about the SpaceX online simulator. Talk me through it. Well, you you just go to SpaceX um, the SpaceX website, go to their online simulator, and you can pretend to manually dock the Crew Dragon to the International Space Station. And it's really, oh, wow. really cool. It's a bit like the BIS Soyuz um, docking simulator that, that they turn up to lots of fairs with, which is really cool. But this And one, how did you get on, did you say? You're not very well. I did really well up until the very last bit. I'd got it all lined up. Everything mm. was perfect. And it's. I think I was just going slightly too fast when I hit the... I, I, I was... Pretty. Do you know what? I was pretty chuffed with myself, and then right at the end, I just panicked, and I was just going a little bit too fast. Sounds like gravity. It was. It was. You a bit, make a film out of yeah, your incident. Out of my terrible bit of driving. Oh, I was very close. But yeah, give it a go, Jamie. It's really cool. I'm going to give it a go. It's very difficult. It's more difficult than you think. Um, yeah. So that that and it gives you an indication. Of course, what what's odd about that is that. Um, it's pretty automatic these days, the Crew Dragon, but that you obviously have to learn how to do it if the aut- automation goes down. Yes, yeah, of course. Or or an astronaut has to get on the old Canadarm and drag you in. Well, I've got a question, Matt. Mm-hmm. What are ESA up to? So ESA, they announced that the Aeolus mission, which if yeah. you remember way, way, way back on podcast, what podcast did I... Did I talk about it on? I think it was like 95 or something like that. So way oh, back. Knows. It yeah. was on the on the same um, podcast that we had Lauren Grush on. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I went to Damstadt in, uh, to see the, see the launch from the control center there of the Aeolus mission, although it ended up uh, launching the next day, <laughs> so I missed it. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, yes, uh, it's it's... It's working really, really well, and now the data is going completely public. 
So this wind measuring satellite, so it's got this amazing uh, laser that they fire down into the clouds and then it bounces back up to the spacecraft and they're able to measure wind speeds. It's one of the most Whoa. technological I love that. bits of genius out there. Very, very difficult to make. They had all sorts of problems. If you listen to Podcast 95, you can, you can listen to a few... Uh, little things that I picked up while I was there. I've also, on the uh -huh. Patreon channel, stuck in a bit of bonus clip that I recorded of one of the mission scientists talking. It's the the audio quality is too bad to be on the on the on the show, but it's interesting. So, <laughs> That's saying something. Yeah, that us. is some that, that is saying something. So it, it's too bad to be on the show. So I've I've stuck it up on the Patreon uh, on the Patreon website. Uh, you can only listen to it if you're a Patreon. I thought it's about time we gave the Patreon some perks. And well, how uh, do you become a Patreon, Matt? Uh, I mean, we normally do this at the end of the show, but oh yeah, well, you go to www.interplanetary.org.uk and make your way from one of the links there, or just or simply go to Patreon.com/forward/slash/interplanetary if you're a little bit Huge. lazy. Huge reveal. That's a huge reveal, wasn't it? So yes, you can go and do that. But yes, that is uh, a little a little chat from Anne Greta Straumer, who's uh, who was lovely. I had a I had a little pint with her afterwards. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, a very 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 cool person. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's now it's now sending data. All that data is going into weather forecasting now, and it's the UK that have um, kind of been leading on that. The European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts mm -hmm. have been using that data since January. Uh, but so yeah, that uh, and there's things like amazing things like they've they've built a whole new downlink station in the Antarctica. So there's these massive antenna that they've stuck in the Antarctica so that, that you can download the data from that satellite and get it out to the world as quickly as possible. Damn. Yeah. So there's uh yeah. So there's the Svalbard uh, antenna and the uh, oh, Antarctica. Matt, I've always wanted to go there. Yeah. I'd, shall we? Shall, there's another little road trip we should do. Svalbard. Let's do it. Hang on a minute. Svalbard, Antarctica. No, there's one in Antarctica and one in Svalbard. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, Svalbard well, is. They're literally the on opposite the coast yeah. of the Arctic. Yeah, isn't they're it? literally the opposite sides of the world. Yeah, and yeah. hence they've got the two. <laughs> they got the two antennas. Yeah. Damn it! I thought I'd caught. I thought I'd caught you out. No, no. You've got to remember that Aeolus is in some form of sun synchronous orbit. So it's going oh, yeah. over, so it's going over the top of the Earth. So that's why you've got those two different uh, places for it to download the information. Oh, big time! It's riding. It's riding the Terminator, as they say. Oh yes, yes. Um, so yeah, beautiful mission, and it's been an utter success. So I feel slightly con connected to that mission because I met a lot of the people involved that went down to Damstad to be involved with the with the launch. It was really cool. So yeah, oh big time. So I feel connected to that. Jamie, would you like to listen to this week's Let's interview? Do it, yeah. Katie Pilachowski, who is a wow. professor of astronomy at Indiana University, Bloomington. Uh -huh. uh, and she holds the Daniel Kirkwood Chair in Astronomy. So she's a bit of a an absolute ledge. Sounds like it. So, yeah. Uh, would you like to uh, hear our little interview? I, Matthew, would love nothing more. Let's roll it. Let's roll it. A cootie. The Interplanetary Podcast. Putting the ace back into space. I am joined on the podcast by Katie Pilachowski, who is from the Indiana University in Bloomington. Welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, yeah, what you what you do at the university and what what your sort of day to day, other than you know, other than dealing with students, what, what your basically your research? The research is fun, um, and and it's especially fun when I can work on research with students. They are so amazing. They have so many creative ideas and so many ways of new ways of looking at stars that it just is always exciting for me. So my work is primarily related to uh, understanding the origin of the chemical elements. That we know there are roughly a hundred of elements in the periodic table, lots and lots of isotopes, many of them actually stable. Um, and and the the quest is to understand where they come from, how they're formed, why do we have the pattern of elements that we see 
when we look at the abundances of elements in the periodic table? Why is the composition of the earth different than we find the composition of stars? Why do different stars have different compositions? So what is it that drives all of this? How does it come to be the way it is in the universe? So when you first started, what, what, what kind of differences... I mean, well, in fact, when when did you first start, and 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 what's kind of been the major breakthroughs and the major kind of discoveries that you've in your lifetime you've seen happen? Wow! So, I think my lifetime actually has been driven by these discoveries in the stars. So, I am a child of the space age, in that I really came into you know intellectual life um, as a as a teenager. Uh, in the 1960s. And there were two influences that uh, I think were really important. One was um, the space age itself. And, and the fact that at that time, of course, we were in the Cold War and there was huge competition between the US and the Soviet Union. And that drove a huge national priority in getting kids interested in science. And that, that got to me. Um, and the other part of it was the fact that since the late 1940s into the 1950s and the early 1960s, there was a tremendous development in the understanding of stellar evolution. That is, what drives a star to do what it does? Why do we have main, the main sequence? Why do we have red giants? What happens at the end of a star's life when it runs out of, out of energy? And it was in that period of time that there were a number of books written on that topic. Um, books about the evolution of stars, uh, the origin of stars, the death of stars. And as a, as a young, really interested person looking at science and reading a lot of books, which is what I did back then, um, I read those books and they were just so inspiring to understand these stars that are so much bigger, so much longer lived, so far away, so out of our ordinary everyday experience. To be able, as human beings, to understand objects like that, just it, it inspired me, and it still does. And the fact that I've been able to spend my whole life studying those things, studying stars, understanding them, is, is, is just a joy every day. In fact, you, you mentioned that you were sort of reading books at the, at the time, and what books in particular sort of sparked your imagination? Who were the people writing about it so at the time? They were, they were books by Fred Hoyle, by George Gamow, by Isaac Asimov. Um, those are the three that that always come into my head. That great storytellers, people with deep understanding of the physics, but able to translate that into a, the language that a high school student could understand. It's mesmerizing for me, um, and I think for a lot of people, those books were very popular at the time. Um, I think they inspired many, many, many people uh, in in a variety of different ways. So, where did you where did you first go to uh, study astronomy at, at sort of postgraduate <laughs> level? Postgraduate, let's see. Um, I have to say, I was I was in college. I, I went to a, a science college, which was wonderful for me, and I didn't know what I wanted to study for a long time. I, I knew I loved a lot of different parts of science, but but I was able to spend one summer at. Haverford College in Pennsylvania, working with an astronomer by the name of, of, of Lewis Green. And he, he was the one who really introduced me to the details of how we begin to understand stars. When I first arrived at Haverford, he handed me a photographic plate. Now this is, this is you know, um, the very late 1960s. Uh, people, people recorded spectra of stars on photograph glass photographic plates. And this is a one by eight inch plate with a little streak of darkness around, around across the, the length of it. And I pulled out a magnifying glass and began to look at it and began to try to orient myself and understand what it is that I'm looking at. And this was really my first exposure to the spectrum of a star. Um, and I spent the summer learning how to convert that. Uh, I mean, I just the technical pieces, how do you convert that that photographic image of a spectrum into something digital that you could actually measure and look at and plot and, and get observations off of. And I found I really loved that part too. It's easy to think about astronomy as something that, that uh, is inspiring, it's beautiful, it's uh, thrilling to look at stars and understand them. But there's, there's this hard work piece that goes underneath it that, that 
requires patience and detail and time and and uh, just lots of work to get to the point that you can say, oh, I knew something. I know something new about this star that nobody's known before. Um, and I enjoyed that hard work part too, that it was just understanding deeply how we get to where we want to be was also part of the thrill for me. So that that was uh, that's what really hooked it for me that I that's what I had to do. So you you were talking about looking at those photographic plates and 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 the spectra and stuff. Is that the sort of thing? Because Jamie and I have just finished talking about the um, the Harvard computers. Is that the sort of work that that the Harvard computers used to do? It look looking at plates and 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 kind of analysing them and and doing the maths around that and the hard basically the hard work bit that you've talked about. The actual work bit, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly right. That you can't it, it, today. We we have all these computers that do all this wonderful stuff for us. But back then, it was it was fingers and eyes and brains that put it all together. That we would start with a photographic plate. We'd need to make whether it's an image or a spectrum or or whatever. Um, we have to pull quantitative information from the smudge on a on a photographic plate, and that required dedication and hard work and and just deep care and deep knowledge for what you're doing to translate what's on a photographic plate. Those Harvard computers, the women who did the work, take the data, look at the data, analyze the data, and present the data to the official astronomers of the university. Um, we owe so much to them. They made so many fundamental discoveries that, that extended up into the, well, into the computer age, into the 40s and 50s when computing actually began to be used in astronomy. Uh, uh, electronic computing as opposed to mm. mathematical computing. Those, those women are just, they're part of our history and, and our tradition. And, and, and actually, I think that's one of the reasons that astronomy has been successful at attracting so many really talented women into the field, much more so than some of the other natural sciences. And that's because of this tradition that was in the field um, from those, those early days in the first part of the 20th century that women were welcomed because they were needed um, and the work that they did was so important to the progress. Yeah, that's a, it's a it's a fascinating story. I'm glad I'm glad that the story is getting more traction again because it because it, it seems to have got forgotten and then has come back round. So when you when you first started um is there is there some major revelations that have happened over the course of over the course of your career where people thought of the way that stars were formed and th thought about their chemical composition that's been turned on its head that 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 was really wrong and and it was like oh no it, it's really like this and everyone sort of went oh no <laughs> it's uh, we're going to have to chuck the uh, we'll chuck the recipe book away as it were yeah, so definitely, absolutely. I mean, it happens. It happens a lot that we we make new discoveries and and there are new things we have to learn. Uh, much of the work I've done over my career has been in the study of globular star clusters, and so these are really, really massive star clusters. They may contain tens of thousands to millions of stars. Um, and they're held together by the gravitational field of the combined mass of all these stars together, and they really just look like balls of stars in the sky. There are about 150, maybe 200, I don't think we found them all yet, um, of these clusters in our Milky Way galaxy. And I learned uh, and continued to think uh, up until maybe 15 years ago that these star clusters are what we would call simple stellar populations. And that means that the stars are formed all at once from one big cloud um, all exactly with the same chemical composition, all exactly with the same age. And we began to, that, that story began to un unravel in the 1980s when um, several of the spectroscopists of the age, including me, but also others, Judy Cohen, uh, Ruth Peterson, uh, began to look in detail at the spectra of giant stars in these star clusters and discovered that some of the stars seem to have um, different, slightly different chemical compositions from other stars in the clusters. And this, this was the first unraveling of, of, of whether these are simple stellar populations because they weren't quite so simple. We didn't understand why some stars had slightly different compositions. Those different compositions turned out to be um, excesses of two oddball elements, uh, sodium and aluminum, 
and uh, some of the stars had stronger nitrogen abundances than other stars. They had less oxygen than other stars. I mean, you really have to look at these stars in detail yeah. to see these kinds of tiny little differences. Now we understand that these clusters are not simple stellar populations. These clusters are the oldest things we find, almost the oldest things we find in the Milky Way. They, they're typically 12, these clusters are 12 billion years old, so they're very, very ancient. Um, and we find that the majority of stars in these clusters are made of material with this unusual composition, that they have these enhanced sodium and aluminum abundances, less oxygen. It turns out they have more helium, which we couldn't detect from the spectra we had. Uh, and, and what this tells us about these clusters is that their formation process was much more complicated than we thought. Uh, they're not simple at all. And in fact, the compositions of these clusters are very different than, in, in terms of these particular elements, are very different than any other stars in the Milky Way. Uh, there are a few stars that escape from, from these clusters that we find sort of randomly around the sky, but, but the globular clusters are the place where these peculiar compositions form. And this is actually pretty important because these clusters are so ancient, 12 billion years old, look at the compositions of the clusters. We're looking at early phases of the evolution of the universe. The, the first really big star forming events, um, they produced the elements that sort of contaminated the rest of the universe. They lit up the universe in exciting ways because they produced all these massive stars right at the beginning. And we're now beginning to find those as uh, black holes in the centers of these clusters. Um, so th their story, their history is connected to the birth of stars and the birth of light in the universe in ways that are, are just amazing. These clusters are part of our history. And, and to begin to understand that history from the perspective of the compositions of these peculiar stars, I, it's just thrilling for me. It's really exciting. What's the very latest thinking about globular clusters and, and how they sort of helped form the Milky Way? Because presumably they're, they're super important when it comes to the actual formation of our galaxy, but do, but does that go out to other galaxies as well? Are, are they? Can we see globular clusters, for example, over in Andromeda? We can, and they are amazing. So yes, we can see globular clusters around Andromeda. We see them in the dwarf satellite galaxies that orbit around the Milky Way. We see them basically in all galaxies when we look out into the deep universe. We know that some galaxies have tons of globular clusters. The bigger the galaxy tends, bigger ones tend to have more globular clusters. But everywhere we look, we can find these. Um, in the local group of galaxies, so here in the Milky Way, in our satellite galaxies, in the large and small Magellanic clouds, in Andromeda, we can resolve those globular clusters and actually uh, see individual stars it's a little more difficult in Andromeda, but we can do it. Uh, but if we go further out into space, further, say, out to the Virgo cluster and, and galaxies further away, the Virgo cluster of galaxies, uh, the globular clusters um, become so small that they're really just points of light, and it becomes a little bit more difficult to distinguish them from uh, faint stars in the Milky Way. But we can. And we know that these globular clusters are common around all galaxies. And as we look at them, we can begin to distinguish that there are different types of globular clusters. And, and we see this in our own Milky Way, but more easily we see this around other galaxies, that we find uh, galax uh, globular clusters that are uh, have different colors. So astronomers measure how much blue light, how much red light, and, and we then can construct sort of, is it bluish or is it, is it a reddish kind of a cluster? When we look at these faraway galaxies, we see populations of, of clusters that are a little more blue and clusters that are a little more red. Um, and we begin to understand that they, they tell us something about galaxy formation, and, and both our own Milky Way formation and the formation of all galaxies. We believe that some clusters are formed in small galaxies, which later merge with a, with a bigger galaxy. They get eaten up. And those form a, a population of clusters that are sort of merger results, that they formed in small galaxies, but they, they now belong to a big galaxy. 
And we know that the big galaxy also formed its own clusters. And those two make up distinct populations around galaxies. Our own Milky Way has two populations. We have a, a population of clusters that really were part of the Milky Way in its formation. And a population of clusters that we think the Milky Way acquired through eating their host galaxies, uh, merging those galaxies into its own larger mass. And so by studying those different populations, we can begin to look at how uh, those mergers occurred. We can look at, at, um, at the kinds of galaxies that, that uh, merged into the Milky Way, the kinds of motions and the ways in which those, those mergers occurred. And so that tells us something about the, the formation of our galaxy and about all galaxies. Yeah, it's it's like it, what I love about this type of astronomy is it, it's like a detective story mixed <laughs> mixed with mixed almost with like a, a genealogy type thing where you're sort of looking at family trees and how people moved around. It, it's it's kind of like that, isn't it? It, it? That's what it feels like to me. Did you do you ever get the sense that it's like that? I hadn't, but you're right. It it does get it does give us that sense of 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 the evolution of the universe, of change, of uh, progression, of, of complexity of the systems that we're looking at, uh, going from lots of little teeny galaxies to uh, galaxies growing and, and getting fewer and, and larger ones, this overall sense of how the universe changes and evolves. Is our, our, our globular clusters are part of that story. Oh, I'm so, I'm so glad we're talking about globular clusters. <laughs> I had no idea, but but you, you, one of my favorite ever things that happened to me. I I I used to do quite a bit of uh, like just you know back garden astronomy, and one of my favorite things ever was to was was discovering about averted vision, and I first sort of really got a feel for it with globular clusters. I, you you can't. It's almost like you can't see them straight on, but as soon as you kind of avert your vision, they, they appear. And it was like that There's magic there. moment of seeing <laughs> yes. a globular cluster from my garden. I was going, oh my god, it, it, it there it is. And it's it, I, I I still think about that all all the time. That I've got I've, I've got a certain affinity to them. Yes. Now, when I was um, so a few years ago, I took a a graduate student down for an observing run at the. Cerro Tololo Observatory down in Chile. And they have, I hope they still have, a small telescope set up out in the parking lot where, uh, well, we take, if we would take a break during the night, I have maybe a long exposure. And we could go out and look through the telescope and, and look out. And I, I wanted the student to see the globular cluster Omega Centauri. It is the most massive, most beautiful cluster, I think, in our Milky Way. And it's actually visible to the naked eye. Um, you can't see it from the UK because it's too far south. Yeah. Uh, from Egypt, it can be seen. And it was actually discovered um, by a British astronomer visiting Egypt. So, And that's oh, why wow. it's Mega Centauri, yep. because it got a star name uh, as a result of, of being uh, looking kind of like a star. And to the naked eye, it barely looks fuzzy at all. But when you put a small telescope on it and find it, you get this oh, kind of moment when you first see it in the telescope, and it's big and bright and absolutely spectacular. Um, they are beautiful oh, wow. to observe. Yeah, they really are. And then w once you get into astrophotography and you start taking pictures of the things, you go, wow. I, I, <laughs> How could there appearing. be so many stars? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's absolutely incredible. And then I, I guess there must be astrophotographers that get obsessed with how many of the stars they can resolve nice and neatly <laughs> yes as well. exactly right yeah. <laughs> although these yeah. days it's hard to compete with the space telescope images which are truly oh, yeah. popular uh, what which actually leads me nicely onto my next question. So, for for me, it I, as an out, out, you know, an outside observer looking, it, it must be one of the truly most exciting times to be an astronomer because you've got quite a few of these um, space telescopes, and, and and in particular, we were talking about you were talking about the sort of dynamic universe, and you've got things like the Gaia Space Telescope, which is mapping all the movement of the stars, and and then you've got obviously Hubble itself, and. Uh, and in the future, James Webb. But you've also got these huge Earth-based uh, telescopes, the super telescopes and the mega telescopes all being built, the very large and all that. It, is this a very exciting time to be in astronomy? And and, and have, have you noticed that kind of change? Or has it always felt exciting for you? Uh, 
For me, it's always felt exciting. Uh, over <laughs> the last, oh, I hate to I hate to admit it, but the last fifty years, there's been just an incredible uh, technology development in astronomy, uh, tied to generally what we've seen in society around the world. But but in, in its adaption to astronomy, it is continually allowed us better, more sensitive, more capable tools to observe the universe. And this this last 50 years has just been an incredible period of deeper and, and more complex understanding of discoveries of things that could barely have been imagined. Remember, the full, first uh, pulsar was discovered basically 50 years ago. Um, the uh, discovery of black holes, uh, the stellar mass black holes in that sort of same time frame. Those are really exciting discoveries. The uh, the space telescope discovery that all all galaxies or nearly all galaxies seem to con contain massive black holes. Um, the discovery that the center of our own galaxy has a massive black hole. The image of the M87 black hole that came out so long ago. It just there's a 50 year period of just incredible discoveries of all sorts in the universe. The the um, merging of black holes. I mentioned. Um, merging black holes may well be associated with the globular clusters that that they formed with a population of massive stars. Those massive stars left a population of black holes in those clusters. And what's happened to those black holes in the intervening 12, 12 billion years, we may now be seeing mergers of those black holes when we find these gravitational wave events that we're detecting with the, with the various detectors around the globe. It's continually an exciting time. It's a thrilling field to watch and a thrilling field to be part of. Yeah, I mean that's 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 super exciting stuff. Um, so so if yeah, I, because it's been so mind blowing this last fifty years of of, of astronomy. I mean, it really, it genuinely has. I mean, you we we, we even left out the uh, the fact that we've discovered that the universe is expanding at an ever fast faster rate and things like that. But it's the um, who, who would have you got like a a a hero, a, an astronomy hero that you would. Oh, gosh. That you would you would love to sort of drag into this time and say, <laughs> look, look, look at what look at look at what we've done. I think the person who would who would be uh, uh, well, uh, any any astronomer from the past would be amazed at where we are today. But I think I would pick Henrietta Leavitt, one of those Harvard computers, um, or any of the Harvard computers. But but Henrietta Leavitt, who first understood the, the relationship between the uh, pulsation period of a Cepheid variable and the brightness of that Cepheid variable that allowed us to measure the distances to, to star clusters, to measure the distances to galaxies, to learn, understand that there are other galaxies out there in the universe, that the Milky Way is not by itself, that we have Andromeda as a nearby uh, galaxy. We have billions and billions of galaxies in the universe. It was Henrietta Leavitt that sort of opened the door to let us do that. And to allow her to come forward and look at what we know today, oh, it would be so astounding to talk to her and to hear what she thinks about it. Yeah, I'm, that, that's a, it's an incredible, it's an incredible moment, isn't it, to be part of those monumental events where you just a, a minor discovery opens up the door to this whole new field of physics and i suppose the people at the ligo detector and, and places like that must feel a similar kind of <laughs> sense of achievement oh they have to i mean it's what they're finding is just so amazing uh, that that merging uh those emerging neutron stars yeah merging black holes are cool but that merging neutron star event <laughs> it's just, just mind-blowing um and to think that those merging neutron stars that produce so many observable consequences and produce platinum and silver and gold, who would have thought? It's just amazing to see that come together and to have us understand the origin of those elements from that gravitational wave detection of two neutron stars merging together so far away. It's an astounding discovery and an astounding picture. 
Yeah, I mean, this that that's precisely what I mean. I, I, for, yeah, it's just so exciting, isn't it? That 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 you can have all this data and all this information, all these people working really, really hard, and still, still, you have these incredible discoveries and you know revelatory moments all all the time. It seems it seems with astronomy, it's it's happening all the time. So with with that, with what sort what sort of things are you working on at the moment? What's what's the what's your over the last couple of years, what have been the things that have been really exciting you and what, what have you been looking at in your own work? Yes. So I've gotten interested. Uh, we, we, we spoke about uh, the sodium and the aluminum. And I've gotten interested in other of those odd elements. So fluorine, chlorine. We don't know very much about those elements because they're really, really hard to detect. We know a lot about the even elements in the periodic table, at least in that part of the periodic table. So um, magnesium, silicon, uh, calcium, we know a lot about the origin of those elements, how they're formed. But those odd elements in between that are they have odd numbers of protons, we don't know very much about their formation mechanisms. And it, it seems as though they are formed by kind of oddball processes that I think can tell us a lot about what goes on in a supernova. Because those elements are formed by processes, for example, like um, neutrino spallation. In a supernova explosion, we have huge, huge numbers of neutrinos suddenly produced and flying out of their stars. Those neutrinos, the production where they're produced, the central part of the star, is surrounded by high, very high density material. Uh, shells of oxygen and neon and, and other elements, very, very dense. The neutrinos have to pass through those shells. And in the process of doing so, a very small, small fraction of those neutrinos knock protons or neutrons off of other nuclei in those dense shells. And some of that produces some of those odd elements that we see in the interstices of the periodic table. Others are produced by other exotic kinds of processes uh, produce a, a, an isotope, an unstable isotope that decays into one of those odd elements. There are just so many of these odd pathways to uh, produce these odd elements and their isotopes. And we know almost nothing about the abundances of those elements. I think when we understand the abundances, where we see them in stars, what kinds of stars we see them in, um, uh, how, they, how they get there, We'll, or where we find them, we'll begin to understand and how the processes work, where they work, and it will, I think, allow us to understand in much greater detail what happens during a supernova explosion. It's sort of a, a, a backdoor way to sneak in and see what's going on in that environment where we can never be in, inside an exploding star. And, and that excites me because we can really begin to understand something that we, we really can't get at any other way. Oh yeah, that that's very interesting. So with the with these odd elements, is it just the fact that they are harder to detect to detect in 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 spectroscopy, or or what what is it that makes them harder to detect and their abundances? Is it so? Most spectroscopy is done at optical wavelengths, and it's only recently that we've had the tools to get high quality, high spectral resolution spectra in the infrared. These elements have uh, features in the infrared part of the spectrum, but not in the optical. For example, right. if we want to study the abundance of fluorine, we have to look for the molecule hydrogen fluoride, which is way out at, at almost three, uh, uh, two and a half microns in the infrared. Chlorine, we have to look at the molecule hydrogen chloride, which is out at, at, um, at about four microns in the infrared. And Without the tools, the technology that's allowed us to, to produce amazing uh, infrared detectors and put them inside of amazing infrared spectrographs on big telescopes, it's that new technology that lets us get at these elements that we could never observe before. Uh, phosphorus is another example. We can observe it with uh, the Space Telescope, with Hubble, um, 
but only in the UV. And in most stars, the lines are so strong that we can't actually use them. But there are lines in the near infrared, sort of just beyond one micron, that allow us to detect and measure the abundance of phosphorus in stars. So it's the technology that lets us get at these elements that we've never been able to observe before and lets us get this new window into what's going on in supernovae. God, that really, yeah, that that's 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 an incredible story. So, so we we just totally in in the dark about the abundance of uh, of a whole group of chemicals on the periodic table. Yes, that's right, and we're just beginning to get there. Uh, there are astronomers have to be super clever. The universe isn't really set up to make it easy for us, and we need to. When we have a thought about, gee, it would be nice if I understood this. It would help me understand that. We have to be pretty creative about, about finding out how we know this. I think that's part of the challenge and also the joy of astronomy, that the, the puzzles we're trying to solve, a lot of the pieces are missing. We have to put the story together uh, and find sort of creative ways to fill in those spaces where we, have, we need information and we don't have it. That's what makes it so much fun. Yeah, so I, I've got. <laughs> I've just had a little question that I think might be quite a nice one. Was that that I often think about science as a sort of jigsaw puzzle, and and that often you're so you've got this jigsaw puzzle, and, and you look down at the at the jigsaw puzzle, and there's there's an obvious space where there's a bit of missing information, and then someone does an experiment, and they find this piece that fits perfectly in that space and that kind of feels like science at it, uh, when it's all working properly and that it kind of gives validation to all the other results when you find the piece that fits so nicely in the jigsaw puzzle but occasionally someone picks up a piece and it and it doesn't go fit at all nicely in the in the jigsaw puzzle something like dark matter or something like that where someone measures the velocities of stars and it's like hang on a second all the galaxies should be flying apart what kind of what kind of uh, discovery do you like the most do you like the discovery that is a nice jigsaw piece that fits in the scientific jigsaw puzzle do you like the discoveries that's the odd piece that where you have to dismantle a little bit and, and start again <laughs> in certain areas uh, they have to go together we really have to have both the pieces that fit are immensely satisfying and yeah. that don't make the challenge and and uh, they open up a whole new puzzle right? It, it's that piece mm. that doesn't fit. Um, it means there's a box somewhere that we have to open and, and then maybe that piece fits in another another puzzle or, or it creates a whole other puzzle inside of a puzzle uh, that, um, that that's what keeps going. I, it's easy to think as, that we know so much that what else is there to know, but everything we learn uh, ask, uh, creates new questions, makes us ask new questions. Even those pieces that fit seem to open new ways of looking at how we are doing what we're doing and what it means. So we take that piece that fits in this puzzle, but maybe it has something to tell us when we put it together, the story that we get from that whole puzzle asks, uh, points us to a question that we don't understand in some other puzzle. That's the joy of this, of this field. I, I must be, I don't know enough about other fields of science to say this, but in astronomy, that's certainly the part of a big part of the joy, and I think that must be a big part of all of it. That you find out something, and it always leads to more questions. People wonder, well, are we ever going to know everything? And the answer is no. Every time we know more, <laughs> we just get more questions. It's it's the beautiful part of it. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the astronomy is the gift that keeps on giving. It is <laughs> so, <for sure>. really. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got one last question. I, I won't take up any more of your time. I, I, I want people like you to be discovering new secrets about the universe rather than talking to English people on the other side of the Atlantic. So uh, one last question. Have you, do, do you, um, for our space playlist, have you, do you have a piece of space inspired music that, uh, that, <laughs> that you listen to occasionally and, and it inspires you to, to, to do more space? <laughs> so I think my favorite CD is one that I'm not even sure is on the market anymore. And I use it often in my classes. It's a CD that was produced by a group at the Goddard Space Flight Center years and years ago, a group called the Chromatics. 
they took their own <laughs> lyrics and songs and and uh, put them together, and they have picked up all kinds of astronomical topics, stars to planets to meteors to galaxies, um, and they're just they're fun to listen to because they all tell stories. They all sort of relate the science in a way that is is engaging and exciting and fun to listen to. So basically anything by the chromatics would be on my list. <laughs> right. I'm going to have to do some digging and see if I can find them and, and get them onto the playlist. That sounds absolutely perfect. But thank, thank you very much for joining me and, 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 and yeah, reigniting really is. It's really, it's so great to talk to, to people about, about astronomy and, and particularly people who, who really know their onions and, and it's just, it, it's just very inspiring. And I, I, I want to, I want to get my telescope out tonight and, and see if I can spot a globular cluster again. Well, keep your eye on Betelgeuse, you know, it's been getting bright. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't know what it's going to yeah, be no, next. I, <laughs> I know I was, I, I was in a big, I was in a big panic. I was thinking, uh, what what would happen if, uh, with all the great observatories shutting down because of the uh, COVID crisis, if if we miss the opportunity to observe uh, Betelgeuse blowing up, it would just be the, the, <laughs> I think the we very worst thing right ever. Right away. <laughs> but let me let yeah. me put in a plug for the amateur astronomers who have done yeoman's yeah. work in tracking Betelgeuse and and helping us understand what what it might or might not be doing these days. Um, the amateurs are fantastic. They they do great work, and we wouldn't be anywhere without them. They're wonderful. Yeah, I, it's it's incredible, isn't it? I I think it's one of the it's one of the very few uh, areas in science where amateurs are still making a huge contribution. I think I'm right in saying you that. are. The, yeah. The, 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 yeah. It's 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 incredible. You know, spotting comets and supernovas and things like that, and. You know, and the work on things like the Zooniverse, where they're ploughing through all the data and still finding new discoveries. Yeah, I think amateur, there's so much to do in amateur astronomy as well. There is. It's wonderful. Um, yeah, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be where we are without, without the amateurs and the hard work they do. So. Yeah, absolute shout out to them. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I've enjoyed this as well, and it's uh, wonderful to talk about astronomy. I love doing it. The Interplanetary podcast putting the ace back into space there you go jamie lots of stellar knowledge there absolutely wonderful stuff and i think if you wanted to follow her where would you go matt probably the best place to go to is the indiana university website and you'll find her as a faculty member there and and there's links out to all her different papers incredible stuff get involved what are you doing for the rest of the day or the rest of the week or you know is it just well is it let me guess is it going to be is your day going to be just endless zoom calls like mine? how did just you guess hour did after you guess? hour of sitting in it's front literally of you. my life at the moment but i won't complain matt i'm one of the lucky ones i'm still very busy with work in the music world and um yeah planning on lots of excellent content with uh with our endorsees so yeah that's that's Good. that's me and I, I think i'm gonna make sure that i get out for my exercise matt i'm i'm gonna be riding a bike i think i'm into my bike riding at the moment and uh excellent yeah excellent. there we excellent. go so keep two meters I, away from me if you see me well that that would be the case in normal life anyway so yeah i mean that's just normal isn't it because yeah. you're a bit like one of those kind of like dogs that have got a muzzle Yes, it's a bit dangerous. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And Matthew, how oh, yeah. are you spending your day? Well, apart do you know from the what? Zoom calls. Once I've finished all my Zoom calls, I'm going to actually, I think, fix my bike. I, my chain has gone incredibly rusty. I had not thought about how bad the sea air. It really is a ruster. Um, well, look at yeah, us, a pair of bikers. Yeah. Pair of bikers. Oh, mm. J- Jamie, did you see my? Did you see? Did you see the picture of the of the SpaceX astronauts in their white leather SpaceX spacesuits? I haven't seen that yet. No. Oh man, it you know that the SpaceX spacesuit was really cool. Yeah. It was like, oh my god, it's the coolest spacesuit ever. Uh-huh. When when sort of two middle-aged men who are a little bit on the portly side get in them. Yeah. 
They don't look that cool at all. They no. really do look like your uncle going on a rubbish Sunday bike ride on his motorbike. <laughs> now I'm going to have to look this up. Uh, they look terrible. Look on our oh, Instagram, God. Jamie. It's 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 actually hilarious. I'll get involved. Uh, get involved. Right. On that note, on the bombshell that SpaceX spacesuits aren't quite as cool as we first thought. Certainly not the Mercury spacesuit, that's for certain. There we go. This is it. I might try and buy a Mercury spacesuit. Gimme, 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 gimme fried chicken. Talking of chicken, I might go and make myself some lunch. Oh, there we go. Have a lovely week, everyone, and we'll see you this time next week for some more fun space stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye, Spudgers! Goodbye. (laughs) 